All right, this, uh, good morning. This hearing on the subcommittee of the Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues will come to order. And the title of this hearing is Barriers to Education Globally, Getting Girls in the Classroom. We'll have two panels today. The first is an official panel, and it will feature the Honorable Catherine Russell, Ambassador at Large for Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State, Mrs. Susan Markham, Senior Coordinator for Gender Equality and Women's Empowerment at the U.S. Agency for International Development. The second panel will include Ms. Linda Hebert, Senior Director of Education and Life Skills for World Vision. Ms. Megan Stone is the President of the Malala Fund, which as part of her testimony will also be sharing a message from Nobel Peace Laureate Malala Yousafzai. And Ms. Kenkaya Nataya, is that right, Nataya? is the founder and the president of the Kenkaya Center for Excellence. And I want to thank you all for being here with us today. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your dedication. I also want to thank all of those who worked alongside my staff to make this hearing possible. Without objection, I'm going to submit for the record Senator Boxer's opening statement. She cannot be here today, but as we all are well aware, she has been an extraordinary advocate on behalf of, of women and girls all over the world. And as kids uh, uh, across America cheer at the end of the school year, an annual ritual for many of us, no doubt, children in other corners of the globe are denied access to education as a result of numerous barriers. And this, unfortunately and tragically, is especially true for girls. The Senate Foreign Relations Co Committee Subcommittee on Western Hemisphere uh, that we're hearing today um, has identified what some of the most consistent obstacles are. And they include health barriers, such as early pregnancy, malnutrition, HIV AIDS, gender-based violence at home or in school, and child early, uh, uh, and forced marriages. Um, economic barriers that include direct costs, such as school tuition, fees, materials, and personal needs, and indirect costs, such as the inability to absorb the loss of income or labor contribution. Physical barriers, including access to all-girls schools, distance and safety between home and school, security issues, such as conflict, the threat of violence or harassment, these realities result in roughly 31 million girls of primary school age and 32 million girls of lower secondary school age worldwide not attending school. I am the father of four. I have been blessed with, four, uh, with my four children, two are school age girls, and these statistics are particularly sobering as each number represents a child denied the opportunity to live up to their God-given potential. These children demand our attention, which has led us to convene today's hearing. With the manifold pressing global challenges before us, from ISIS and Boko Haram to a global refugee crisis, an issue like girls' education could easily be overshadowed by the tyranny of the urgent. But I would assert, and I suspect our witnesses today would agree, that prioritizing access to education for girls globally is critical, not simply on its own merits, which are significant, but precisely because of the impact it has on so many issues. Time and again, experts have connected women's education with economic empowerment, growth, and ultimately, the development of local and national governments. In addition, higher levels of education have translated into reduced maternal and infant death rates, lower rates of HIV AIDS, and superior child nutrition. On the flip side, there is also research indicating that when children are denied access to education, they are at greater risk of exploitation in its many forms, to include human trafficking and forced labor, and even conscription as ch child soldiers. It is also worth noting that many of the same countries in the world that are contending with violent Islamic radicalization also have low literacy rates. Consider that in Afghanistan, only 17% of women are literate. And as Ms. Stone can no doubt attest, the statistics are similarly worrisome in Pakistan. 
In these and other countries, access to quality education for girls is often difficult to obtain or is limited to religious education. Experts have asserted that increasing women's access to secular and mainstream religious education is an important way to prevent radicalization and that educated women are better able to intervene and stop the radicalization of their children, thus breaking the cycle of radicalization in marginalized communities. This is a complex but important issue which I hope we will be able to explore further during the course of the hearing. Another global phenomenon which demands our attention is the impact that various wars and conflicts and violence are having on children's education. As one of our witnesses will testify, in crisis contexts, education systems are three times as likely to be disrupted. A cursory glance at the headlines underscores that there are no shortages of crisis situations around the world. According to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, nearly half of the 20 million refugees under their care are children below the age of 18. Access to education for this group is limited, with only 50% of refugee children enrolled in primary education and a mere 25% in secondary school. Today's hearing is going to allow us to explore both the many challenges I've already outlined, but just as importantly, the incredible opportunities that are before us as we chart a path forward in anticipation of a day when every child, no matter where they live, has access to quality education. I look forward to hearing from our administration witnesses about the scope of the U.S. government's work in this area. I'm also interested to hear from our panel of private witnesses. You have experience in the field that will contribute greatly to what we can easily, to what can easily become an abstract policy discussion. With that, I would like to turn it over to Senator Kane, um, who will be filling in for Senator Boxer today, who is also, by the way, an incredible advocate on behalf of the children and girls uh, around the world. Thank you, Chairman Rubio, and thanks. What a wonderful thing it is to walk in and see such a full committee room on an important topic. And in my role as sort of designated hitter, as the ranking member today, I'm going to channel two great women, Senator Boxer, who worked very hard with Chairman Rubio to get this hearing set up, and then unfortunately, at the last minute, was not able to be here today. But I'm also going to try to channel my wife, Ann, who's Secretary of Education in Virginia. And this is an issue that is very, very dear to her heart, and I know she's She's probably sad that Governor McAuliffe is making her do her day job in, uh, in Richmond today rather than being here with us. The chairman did a great job of, of basically laying out what's at stake. If girls around the world have a chance, a meaningful chance at quality education, so many good things happen to them and to their societies. Educated women are more likely to build businesses and, uh, and hold jobs and create jobs and earn higher wages and help their community and national economies grow. Educated women are more likely to seek leadership roles in government and advocate for policies that benefit their communities and that makes societies more stable. And educated women are more likely to have healthier families as child survival rates increase the uh, longer girls attend school and that's so important and that results in stronger, more resilient families and societies. Access to education is more than just a fundamental individual right, it's something that that works to the good of the entire society. Thomas Jefferson, who we revere in Virginia, wrote, and it's still in the Virginia Constitution, progress in government and all else depends upon the broadest possible diffusion of knowledge among the general population. Now, he, he lived at a time where he couldn't have imagined an internet or all knowledge would be digitized, but he was talking about the diffusion of knowledge among everybody. And if that was the case, it wouldn't just be good for individuals, it would also be good for the society by raising standards. And also giving people a check against tyranny. The more educated folks are, 
the more they're likely to spot when somebody's oppressing them and then stand up and advocate against them. Uh, my wife Ann and I, uh, and I know my colleagues enjoy this too, when we, when we do CODELs, we often will meet with our State Department or USAID spectacular public servants abroad and see the kinds of programs that the United States invests in. Ann and I were in Northern Africa in the last couple of years and we spent time with USAID looking at programs that are largely focused on education, education of girls in many communities. And I saw it also in Honduras as I worked there 30 years ago, the work that the U.S. does to advocate for education. But look, I've, I've laid out the clear benefits, but we know the benefits just making that case aren't enough because there's over 62 million girls worldwide that are completely denied any opportunity to go to school. Just a couple of uh, uh, points, uh, and this is not to pick on any part of the world because we could find some challenging statistics anywhere. In South Asia, 16 million girls never make it to secondary school. Only 8% of adolescent girls in Sub-Saharan Africa complete secondary school. Chairman Rubio mentioned other statistics. And then we see atrocities that call and pull on our heartstring, the brutal kidnapping of the 300 Nigerian school children by Boko Haram, the near assassination of Malala, and we're gonna hear her powerful story today. And then just lesser known day-to-day -day threats that may not get the headlines, but that, that people being blocked and then that puts an aspiration on their, their puts a, a ceiling on their aspirations and what they can achieve for themselves and their society. And we've seen a horrible thing in recent years, attacks on schools, schools themselves. In 2009 and two, from 2009 to 2013, nearly 10,000 targeted attacks against schools worldwide. So the cost of denying girls an education are enormous. For every extra year a girl stays in school, her projected income increases by 10%. For every extra year that a girl stays in secondary school, her chance of getting infected with HIV AIDS decreases by half. Girls with a primary school education are four times more likely to be child brides uh, than those who do not, four times less likely to be child brides than those who don't have a primary school education. And that's just some of the many reasons why we need to champion. One final thing, um, I really commend the President and the First Lady for their Let Girls Learn initiative, and that marks a really important step uh, in ensuring that all girls get access to education that they deserve, and the administration's global strategy to empower adolescent girls is also a really important step to address a previously underserved area in our efforts to support education. Again, this is a hearing that's in the best traditions of this committee. You know, Foreign Relations Committee has often thought about treaties and, and diplomatic deals, but the work that we do to both set an example and then invest in education around the globe is one of the most powerful things that we do in terms of who the U.S. is in the world and the positive effect that we can have on the rest of the world. So I'm so glad that the chairman and ranking member Boxer are scheduling this hearing and look forward to talking to the witnesses. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Kane. And uh, so I know, Ambassador, you need to, you have a hard stop here in about 40 minutes, so um, 35 minutes. Well, we'll work with you on that, but we wanted to now recognize the witnesses. Just know your statement is already in writing and in the record, so if you need to abbreviate it, that works for us, too. So okay, welcome to the committee. I'll speak briefly. But first of all, good morning, and thank you both, uh, Chairman Rubio and Senator Kane and Senator Gardner as well, not just for holding this hearing on barriers to girls' education, but also for your interest in this. We really very much appreciate that. Um, we see girls' education as critical to U.S. foreign policy. Why? Because the ultimate goal of our efforts is to help countries become more stable, more prosperous, and more secure by increasing the participation of women whether that's at the peace table, in parliament, or in the economy. 
it's really quite straightforward, as you said, Senator Rubio. Countries do better when women do better. As just one example, McKinsey recently released a study showing that world GDP would increase by $28 trillion by 2025 if women participated fully in economies. I mean, just a staggering number. Increasing women's meaningful participation will depend on getting girls educated. Last year, I visited a girls' school in Kenya, and as I walked through the grounds with the principal, we came across a sign that said, you are not too young to change your nation. That sign I saw as both a promise and a warning. Adolescent girls are critical to the future of their countries, but adolescence really is a fork in the road for girls' lives. On one path, an adolescent girl will stay in school, she's more likely to marry later, have fewer and healthier children. If she graduates, she's more likely to earn an income that she will invest at higher rates back in her family and her community. And I might add that women invest in higher rates back into their family than men do. They get their children educated and immunized, so we see them as a very good development investment. The other path is just much harder. When an adolescent girl drops out of school, she faces increased risks of gender-based violence, of early enforced marriage, of early pregnancy, of HIV infection and other maternal morbidities. She's more likely to be unskilled, have less earning power, and be less able to meaningfully participate in her society. Research shows that far too many girls are on that second path. A quarter of a billion girls live in, I'm sorry, yes, a quarter of a billion girls live in poverty. More than 700 million girls and women alive today were married as children. And if current trends continue, the total number of women alive that were married in childhood will grow to almost 1 billion by 2030. Girls account for more than 70% of new HIV infections among adolescents in countries hardest hit by HIV AIDS. An estimated 200 million women and girls in 30 countries have undergone female genital mutilation and cutting. Of the 13 million illiterate youth around the world, 63% are girls. And 62 million girls, as you both said, are not in school, which means they face diminished economic opportunities and increased risk of discrimination and violence. As a country that cares deeply about each individual's ability to realize and exercise their rights as human beings, the United States plays a very important leadership role in supporting these girls in their communities. As I said at the outset, this work advances our strategic interests as well, because by investing in adolescent girls, we invest in the future of a country, in its peace, its security, and its prosperity. Keeping girls in a quality education for as long as possible is critical, but as you said, it is not easy. As today's hearing will show, complex barriers stand in the way of girls' education. Many families prioritize education for boys and early marriage for girls. Girls are burdened by crushing work responsibilities at home or in the market. And if they're lucky enough to get to school, they have poor teachers or they have inadequate sanitary facilities or they face sexual uh, harassment in the classroom or on the way to and from school. The barriers vary, but the results are tragically the same girls are held back from reaching their full potential. That's why earlier this year, as you said, we, the Secretary launched our Adolescent Girls Strategy, which we'll make sure you have copies of. Um, this is the first U.S. strategy, as far as we know, the United States is the first country in the world to develop a strategy solely focused on the protection and advancement of adolescent girls. It sets out a framework for the U.S. government's work that will guide our work for years to come. I'd like to highlight the work we're doing in coordination with Let Girls Learn, as Senator Kane mentioned. It's a presidential initiative championed by the First Lady. Let Girls Learn is focused on ensuring that adolescent girls can get a quality education that empowers them to reach their full potential. A key part of our approach is that it's holistic. We're working to include relevant stakeholders across the U.S. government and beyond to tackle the range of challenges that hold girls back. 
Through the Let Girls Learn Challenge Fund, which Susan, I'm sure, will discuss in more detail, we have selected two focus countries so far, Malawi and Tanzania, where we're really trying to take a comprehensive approach to the issues facing women and girls, including safety, health, and education. And I just might add, this is, this is the first time the U.S. government is approaching an issue like this. We're very excited about it. We're slightly daunted, but we're, we're committed to making sure this works. And that's what it's really going to take to make sure that adolescent girls like the ones I met in Kenya and the ones I meet all over the world in my travels are getting the education they need to succeed. As that sign said, these girls are not too young to change their nation, and it's really not too late for us to support them in reaching that potential. So thank you again for doing this hearing. We very much appreciate it. Thank you for your service. Uh, Ms. Markham. Good morning, Chairman Rubio, Senator Kane, and distinguished members of the subcommittee. Thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today regarding the critical issue of girls' access to education around the world. It is, honor, it is an honor to be joined by my colleague, Ambassador Kathy Russell from the State Department and by others who are working to let girls learn. On a recent trip, the Chief Director for Basic and Secondary Education in Malawi shared with me a conversation that she had had with a prominent village leader. When the Chief Director asked how many children the village leader had, he responded, I have three kids and two girls. The phrasing of his response underscores how girls continue to be marginalized in many homes and societies. In some cases, the extent to which the girls' females are valued determines whether newborn girls are allowed to survive in places where female infant side is practiced, or whether a girl is registered at birth to receive the documents she needs to establish her legal identity, enroll in school, register a marriage, own land and property, and assert her rights to make healthcare decisions. Gender norms determine the way households allocate resources to sons and daughters by influencing family decisions about boys' or girls' education, where they work, where they eat, and how they spend their time. Girls are often expected to complete chores, collect water and firewood, care for the household, and watch over other children, while boys are often expected to go to school, become breadwinners, and represent the family in public gatherings and forums. In many places, as girls approach puberty, her world shrinks further as her mobility and opportunities decrease. As a girl grows older, the fight to get an education becomes even harder. Ambassador Russell, Russell shared with you the stark numbers that we hear far too often and the impact on the lack of education has on these girls. Going further, in many places where boys and girls do not have educational opportunities, they are in danger of being exploited, forced to work, conscripted as child soldiers, or become prey to violent extremism. Education is a crucial aspect of increasing girls' opportunities to participate fully in their societies, and the first step to change values and norms around women and girls. At USAID, we know from our decades of experience that education is central to unlocking human potential on a transformational scale. Yet societies do not fully benefit from the contributions of women and girls due to their lack of access to education. I had the opportunity to visit Tanzania last, last month and I met with a group of girls in their early teens who were still in school. When I asked them what they wanted to be, I was inspired by these young women who expressed their desires to become chemists, research and, researchers, and pilots. When I followed up with one who said she wanted to be a pilot, I asked her if she'd ever even been in an airplane. She had not, but her education opened up her world and shown her what was possible and what could be within her grasp. 
In every region in the world, women are underrepresented in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, limiting countries' abilities to harness their talent and skills and address development challenges. Countries that invest in girl, girls' education have lower maternal and infant rates, lower rates of HIV AIDS, and better child nutrition. Simply put, when women are educated, they are a powerful force for change. Women are more likely to reinvest their earnings in their families to improve education, nutrition, and health, helping to break the cycle of poverty. When they play an active role in civil society and politics, governments are more responsive, transparent, and democratic. When women are engaged at the negotiating table, peace agreements are more durable. That is why contributions to peace and security through education, science, and technology are prerequisites for sustainable development allowing economies to grow and societies to flourish. I've also seen this firsthand in Yemen when I was working with a group of women around the peace and reconciliation process. These women were not in the official national dialogue, they weren't party officials, but we asked them for their ideas. What did the Yemen they envisioned look like in 10 years? What role did they want to play? And what would they find impactful? Their answer, literacy programs. Women wanted to be able to read the paper communicate with each other, and pass those fundamental skills on to their daughters. USAID recognizes the transformational potential of educated women and girls in Yemen, Tanzania, and elsewhere. Through our education strategy, we focused on primary grade reading, education in conflict or crisis, and workforce development and higher education. And we continually work to increase gender integration and attention across the approximately $1 billion of annual education investment. USAID envisions a world where females and males are equally able to access quality education and healthcare, accumulate and control their own economic assets and resources, exercise their own voice, and live, live free from intimidation, harassment, and discrimination. And we think education is key to this. I look forward to answering any questions that you may have. Thank you, and thank you for your service and all the work you're doing as well. I'm going to begin by deferring to Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the witnesses for being here today. I appreciate your time and testimony. I had the opportunity just a couple of months ago to travel to Israel and see some of the great work USAID is doing in education. I traveled and visited the Hand in Hand School along with Senators Cardin, uh, Markey, and, and some others that joined us uh, as they bring together Jews and Arabs in the same school to receive education and uh, opportunity uh, to, to work together, to grow up together, and to befriend each other. Uh, the, recent opportunity I had to visit uh, Myanmar, Burma, uh, also opened uh, uh, my eyes to what's happened around the globe, particularly in Southeast Asia. I had an opportunity to visit with Administrator Smith uh, about her recent visit to uh, Burma as well. And so uh, to, to you, Ambassador, and to you, Coordinator Markham, I would ask this. Uh, during that visit to, to Burma, uh, we talked a lot about education reform, we talked with Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, about the work that she is now doing leading Burma in the transition to, uh, to what I hope is a full-fledged uh, democracy. Uh, education reform, clearly one of their, their most important uh, policy pursuits, but also one of their greatest challenges, because after 50 years of harsh military rule, uh, their education system in many respects has been decimated, and so the new civilian government has a tremendous amount of work to do. Uh, to make this transition successful. And so, uh, to the two of you, uh, what programs does the State Department have and USAID currently have in, in the sphere of, of Burma? Uh, what, what could be useful for them? What can we help them with? And how can we help that country rebuild its educational system and ensure better access for women and girls to educational opportunities? 
Either one, either one, or both. Senator, I'll, I'll start and then I'll, I'll certainly defer to Susan who uh, probably has more information on the programming, but I, I did travel to Burma fairly recently too and I, I had a, the same reaction. It was interesting, I went to a girls' school and the girls were telling me that in some of their classes, if they, they would have to recite things um, and if they didn't recite it exactly right, they would get tossed out of the class and if the teacher didn't get it right, and the girls challenged them, they'd get in trouble for that. And so I, it, I came back with the same notion that we really need to do a more thoughtful uh, look at what some of these curricula look like and how we can try to develop them in a more, um, in a way that encourages people to question and to really be um, analytical in their work. Uh, from our perspective at the State Department, we have done a fair bit of work in Burma on um, supporting uh, women, small programs to try to get women either involved in the political process, involved in the peace process, and some work on economic empowerment. Uh, and as I said in my statement, we see all of those as really integrally related to each other. Uh, and so we are continuing to look for opportunities to work in Burma. I feel like there's tremendous opportunity there. Um, and I'll defer to Susan on some of the other programming questions. Thank you so much for that. Uh, USAID works in partnership in Burma with various local education and government partners to increase recognition of community and refugee-based education as well. The programs um, that I think are kind of the key aspects of the work that we do in Burma include non-formal education opportunities for children in communities that have been infected by conflict in Southeast Burma and those displaced Burmese in Thailand. We also work with ethnic community-based um, organization partners to make sure schools in conflict-affected areas uh, continue to uh, have students attend. And we've also supported education in refugee camps and migrant learning centers that use the Burmese curriculum for primary-level classes for displaced Burmese children in Thailand who seek to return to Burma. Thank you. And throughout our visit, visited in Singapore and Taiwan and Myanmar, um, and we talked about areas of, the, of that part of the world that are improving in terms of uh, opportunities for women and opportunities for uh, more freedom for its, their people. Uh, wh where do you look out, though, in Southeast Asia in particular? As chair of the East Asia Subcommittee, I'd be very interested in this answer. Where do you look at in, in East Asia, Southeast Asia, and see things getting better for women in education opportunities? Uh, where do you see things getting worse, or where are you concerned about the most? Well, there, there are a variety of different barriers, I think, across the countries. Um, even, as you know, within that region, the countries can be so different even within a, a single country. In Cambodia, I was both in rural areas and in in the capital, and in the rural areas, it was much more, so many men had gone away to seek work in other parts of the country or in other countries, and so women were remaining there to do a lot of the agricultural work that needed to be done. And for them, it was a very fundamental choice between are the schools good enough that we would take the time and money to send our daughters there when we really need them helping us with rice or other agricultural products? In the more uh, urban areas, it was more um, issues of violence, HIV, um, and other health issues that were uh, impacting girls' ability to go to school. So I think that it's hard to kind of give a broad uh, picture. I mean, certainly in Indonesia, we're worried about issues of child marriage and FGMC and other issues that impact a girl's um, opportunity to go to school. In places like Bangladesh, um, we work to prevent child marriage in order to keep girls in school. So it's really varied across places. Um, I do think overall with uh, hearings like
like this and with the uh, Office of the First Lady um, continuing to talk about the importance of girls' education, it certainly is an easier conversation. We no longer have to make the why argument, but really the how. How can we make this happen? Very good. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, the witnesses. Thank you very much. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and to the witnesses, thanks for your testimony. Um, by 2020, the World Bank ex uh, Group expects to invest about $2.5 billion in education projects targeting uh, adolescent girls from age 12 to 17. About 75% of these investments are expected to be from the International Development Association's Fund, which is the bank group's fund for the poorest countries, largely in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Asia, which have the highest numbers of out-of-school girls. Could you talk a little bit about how uh, state or the U.S. family of uh, agencies working on this will work to help the World Bank Fund guide the development uh, or the uh, direction of those sizable investments so they can help uh, maximize the effect that they'll have? Yeah, Senator, thank you for that. And, and we were very excited to see the, the World Bank's announcement about that. We are coordinating with them. Uh, our teams have been working together to try to think about how best to do this work. The way they typically do their funding is that these uh, proposals generate up from the countries. And so I think uh, there was an event at the World Bank where it was India, I think Ghana and Rwanda came forward and sort of made it clear what they were planning to do. Uh, we're working with the bank to try to think about how best to do this in these countries. And I think over the five-year period, assuming that those investments are done wisely, which I expect that they will be because I think the bank is very thoughtful, um, we, we hope to try to do our work in a way that um, is reinforcing of that work. I mean, I always think the United States, you know, we do so much important work around the world, we can't be everywhere doing everything. And so one of the major tasks that I've mm -hmm. undertaken is to try to make sure that we're coordinated with the other players in the, in the field, and that includes the UN, the World Bank, so the multilateral world, and also our bilateral partners. So when I mentioned what we're doing in Malawi and Tanzania, we're now in this very, uh, substantial process of trying to identify who else is there, what they're doing, what NGOs are there, so that we can try to do our work in a more coordinated way. And as I said in my remarks, that's not typically the way the U.S. government approaches these issues because gender is, is a fairly mm -hmm. unusual issue. But I think on, on this issue it makes the most sense because we really have such a huge task ahead of us. And if we can all do our work in a more efficient way, reinforcing each other's work, I think it's just going to be much more productive. Let me ask you about education and refugees. The chairman talked about, you know, all the normal challenges of the education of girls, and then we have these situations in the world now where people are displaced from their homes, which makes the provision of educational um, programs even more difficult. I visited Syrian refugees in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, um, two-plus million in Turkey, some in refugee camps, some in communities near the border, Ghazi and Tep and others. Um, in Jordan heavily in camps, but some living in community. Lebanon has not really done much on the camp side, so there's more Syrian kids in the Lebanese school systems than there are Lebanese kids because of the one plus million numbers. Um, what are we doing uh, to focus upon the needs of, especially just to, as an important and powerful example, Syrian refugee kids uh, and making sure that they are receiving education, especially young girls? Thank you so much for that important and timely question. Um, just last month at the World Humanitarian Summit, USAID pledged um, $10 million as part of a $20 million support from the US government 
to the Education Cannot Wait Fund, because I think it is an important issue. Oftentimes, when we think about humanitarian assistance and providing aid to refugees, we think about the immediate needs of shelter and food and safety. But now, longer and longer, refugees are not getting back to their homes, and they're either in camps or urban areas. And so this program is going to move up the education programming so that we are providing it sooner to those who have been displaced from their homes. But I should say, a majority of the Syrian refugees are not in camps. They're in urban areas in, in Lebanon and Jordan. And we've been very thankful for good government partners there, uh, where USAID has been working with the governments. Specifically in Jordan, we've been working to build new schools as quickly as we can, uh, so that they can run multiple shifts, that boys and girls can continue their education as they move forward. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. Um, can, I, can I make please. one point yeah, about that? Please, I, I would Russell. say just that the, I think the international system is straining under the burden of these refugees and trying to figure out how to address these challenges uh, more effectively. Obviously, the resources are critical to that. Um, but what we're seeing in particular when, when you look at the girls is we're seeing a higher rate of uh, early marriage among girls. And it's families who are looking around and they see their girls are in danger, so they decide it's easier and better and safer for the girls to get married than it is to be out in the community and vulnerable. We're trying to do some programming on that front. On that front. I mean, we're also looking at economic opportunities so that, you know, women, a lot of times these are women-headed households, they don't have a way to support their families. So we're taking a look at the, the range of issues, but I would just sort of echo your point that all of the challenges that you see in a regular circumstance are magnified and exacerbated by conflict. And I think the whole world is struggling to try to do a better job to address those problems. Well, uh, one last question. I'm a proud uncle. My niece was a Peace Corps volunteer in Cameroon and worked on uh, girls' education issues there. She she came back a couple of years ago, but I know the Peace Corps has really embraced the Let Girls Learn uh, initiative, and I don't have a Peace Corps witness here, but I know you guys work closely with the Peace Corps. I wonder if you just might offer some thoughts about the, what the Peace Corps is doing to make sure that our volunteers in communities around the world are really uh, advancing this important goal. One, one thing I would say is that the Peace Corps is an important partner with us in this effort overall. Um, and they were a part of the strategy. We're, we're very closely uh, linked with them and with MCC, as a matter of fact. We're really trying to organize ourselves very effectively. But the Peace Corps does bring a really unique perspective to this, which is that, as you say, they have these volunteers who are living in these communities and understand what the communities need. And that, to us, is very valuable. You know, we sit in Washington. We try to design programs, try to come up with things. But to have people who are actually out there and understand exactly what's going on, as USAID certainly does, but I think Peace Corps in a different way uh, really brings a valuable perspective to this. And so we're very much uh, grateful to them. The, the head of the Peace Corps is devoted to getting more girls into, into, education, into education settings. And she personally is very involved with us in trying to do this in a more organized way. Excellent. Thank you very much. Mr. Chair. Thank you. Let me just begin with a couple of uh, quick questions, and then I want to get into the guts of everything else we've talked about. On the, um, I'm curious, do we, as we go abroad in our, beyond simply, in all of our contracting that we do overseas, everything from the people we hire to work at our embassies and consulates, talking about nationals, all the way to projects of any scope that we are doing in other countries that are being funded through USAID, do we have a program that actively seeks to hire uh, firms and companies that are run by or owned by women in these countries as we try to empower an entrepreneurial class in some of these places? In essence, if we, let's say we have a 
any, any sort of project in a, in a foreign country and we're leveraging U.S. funds to do it, is there any program or incentive uh, system in place to try to affirmatively hire, if possible, women-run businesses in some key countries around the world? Senator, I am not aware that we have that sort of program in, on the procurement office side. I do know that through the USAID um, efforts to empower more local organizations, quite frankly, a lot of the civil society organizations that we work with, it is the place that women can step forward and show a lot of leadership. So when we look to empower local organizations and invest um, our development funds through them, they're oftentimes through women-owned or women-directed organizations. But I do not know of any specific procurement. So, because um, I guess my, it was just a suggestion, but my point, and maybe something we need to work on, but my, my point on that front is, the next step after the education is to empower women to have a place in both the business and civic life of a country. And if we're spending millions of dollars in a country to do everything from build roads and bridges to build schools to run systems, and there are in fact companies that are either run or started by women who may perhaps have benefited from the education that we have funded, I think that would be the next logical step in leveraging our aid and empowering and getting experience and work for companies. It's just a thought and maybe that's something we need to develop on our end. If I could just follow up on that, I should say that one of the main points or one of the main strategies of our education strategy is workforce development. So we're working with companies that exist in the countries where we work to create a pipeline so that education isn't the end all, right? We're creating a pipeline so that they can join the formal workforce as needed and one of the largest programs USAID has ever created is called the Promote Program in Afghanistan, which is specifically focused on girls who are graduating from secondary education and then comparing them if, with civil society, government, or private firms so that they can gain the skills to enter the formal workforce. It's exactly what you're saying. We've made this investment. The girls that we invested in primary are now secondary and looking ahead, and we're trying to help uh, build a path for that. Yeah, and I know every country possesses different challenges. Uh, my, my view is we're doing the education, we're doing the workforce empowerment. I think the next logical step at some point is to help leverage our aid to create an entrepreneurial class of women business owners. If you want to talk about ultimately completing the cycle, maybe that's something we should talk about further. I'm also interested in what we are doing, if anything, uh, and I'm kind of taking you to a different part of the world for a moment, in Central and Latin America, and particularly the migrant crisis that we now see uh, emanating out of Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, the Northern Triangle. And as we've all read the horrific tales of what's happening uh, to women in particular, young women in particular, who are being trafficked in the hands of these horrifying cartels and so forth, what efforts do we have, number one, to prevent the migration, and secondly, to provide services, uh, empowerment services, if in fact they're returned to their country of origin? I, I visited one site in Honduras where I saw some work being done, and World Vision was involved in that as well, uh, that was providing and it was going to lead into the next question that I have. It was providing what I would call character education. But I was, con the next question is, and that's important, but education, it has to be the right education, the curriculum, what we're teaching, you know, uh, given, given the, the limited resources we have, access is important, but programming on the quality of that education is important. So how are we balancing that between, I know it's a, how, I went from the migrant thing to this because it's the experience I just came from, how are we balancing programming and access? They're both important, but the access should lead to quality programming, not just, you know, we got you in a classroom, we're gonna teach you a few basic things. 
Well, let me, let me say first, if I can, about that region, which is an interesting region for women. Um, in some ways, you, you see women leadership uh, in political leadership, and that's pretty impressive. And the girls' education numbers, and this is a broad... I'm sorry, no, you see women leadership in South America. You don't see it nearly yes. oh, as no, often absolutely. in Central. In, in Latin America, so, yes. I'm sorry. You, you'll see it yes. in South America. Yeah, heads yes. of state. And La True. But somehow when Central it America, stops no, when you I get into the Central America. Yeah. Um, but, and, and we see the girls' education numbers are, are pretty good across the region. Again, in, in Central America, we see in some indigenous populations that there are problems, early, early marriage in these populations, and so we're taking a, a closer look at that. Um, but where you have very serious problems is we have very serious problems of gender-based violence in that region, and we need more economic opportunities for women. And those two things, I think, are driving our thinking, at least on, on the State Department side, about how we should think about women's issues as we move forward with addressing the issues in the, in the three countries. Uh, and the, I think, um, I, I know that there have been lots of conversations with Congress about the funding for that, and we're, we're taking a look at how we can do more effective and better programming on that issue. On your second point about, um, I, I can't remember what it was, po uh, oh, what was it? quality, oh yes, I'm sorry, of course, quality. I 100% agree with that. It doesn't do any good to just put these kids into a school. They need to be getting a quality education. Having said that, that is very, challenging in many places. I just, I was in Malawi not too long ago, and there were literally 60 kids sitting under a tree, right, with nothing, no piece of paper, nothing, and just listening to that teacher for an hour talk about things. And I think even the best teacher is going to struggle with that. And so across the board, we really have to think about how we can help train teachers, support teachers, and make it clear to countries that that's an important part of what they're, what they're supposed so, to be doing. So another thing that's interesting as we look, I mean, one of the things that I think begins to change the dynamic is when you can get more women into senior government leadership positions. So here's something, and I know Senator Kane will have noticed this as well. When I read the bios of heads of state and foreign ministers and, you know, the, it almost invariably includes, at some point, study in the United States, which in many of these countries is largely reserved to the, those who come from wealthy families. What efforts have we undertaken, uh, or are we undertaking, to close the cycle so of, of, of a young girl has been exposed to anywhere in the world to education and primary and secondary education they've now finished? Do we have efforts to help more young women around the world travel to the U.S. and attend colleges or universities here that will in fact position them to return and, and play a role in some of the leader, senior leadership positions in government around the world, or in business for that matter. I think, I'm sure you, you've been briefed on, on some of the work that our um, ECA Bureau does. I mean, we bring millions of people to the United States over, over uh, periods of time, and we've had many conversations with them thinking about, not, it's not enough just to make sure that there's some sort of gender parity in their work, um, but also thinking about things like, sometimes they'll bring a group of women entrepreneurs, for example. Um, and I met with a group that came from the Middle East, and the women said, you know, it's great that we come as a group of women and we can talk amongst ourselves, learn from each other, learn from American business uh, leaders and things. So, but it's also important for us to be in groups with men so that the men in our region see us as equals. And so we're, we're, we're taking a, a careful look at that. It, 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 these issues are always so complicated, and it does in a way depend on uh, a different sort of the mores in a country, but I, there's no question that from our perspective, the United States government, the United States stands for something. We have values here, we have principles, we're trying to share those with others, not trying to, you know, force others to do things as we do them, but to learn from what we've, what we've done in the U.S. And I think that the power of the United States to bring people here, to show them how we live, to show them how women and girls have opportunities here, 
you know, I'm always very careful to be uh, humble about that and say we still have challenges in the United States. It's not like we've solved every problem. We have problems with gender-based violence and other issues. We don't pretend to know everything, but we have a lot of experience that we'd be happy to show. And I think both by example and by, uh, you know, sort of spending time and teaching them, we go a long way. Now, I will say one of the things I hear about constantly is the United States only has 20% women in Congress. So just, I don't know if you hear that when you travel, but they say to me, what's going on in the U.S.? You know, why don't you have more women? And I say, Well, you know, we, were, we were just talking about that. Yeah, so. it's complicated, right? I mean, women have opportunities here, but there are reasons, and everyone's trying to understand that. Why don't more women run? You know, is it that they don't like to raise money? Is it that they take failure personally? Who knows, right? But every, there's a lot of research being done on that front. And I think, again, the United States really has a, a lot of ability to share our, our experience. With well, them. the only answer, I, I don't, obviously it's a deeper issue about the representation in Congress. I will add this, as the father of a 16 and 14 year old and watching my daughters and their contemporaries uh, grow up and talk and express themselves, those numbers are gonna change. Yeah. They're coming, so uh, they're. I agree. Uh, uh, so that, and that's great. Uh, I, I did, did you want to add something? Just on that one, I, I think even the fact that we acknowledge that as a weakness can sometimes help us in dialogue with other nations because if it's all like, we know everything and we exactly. want to teach it, well, that's not too appealing. We're 19% we're in Congress, that's the most it's ever been. That ranks as 75th in the world. Iraq is 26%, Afghanistan's 28%, Rwanda, number one, is 64%. Mm -hmm. uh, our 19% is significantly below the global average and part of being a great nation is feeling good about the things we do well, but also being confident enough to look in the mirror and say, but here's some areas where we don't do well. So to enter into a dialogue, some of the nations we're talking about where the education stats are so poor, nevertheless have significantly higher um, representation of women in their national legislative bodies than we do. So to have a dialogue about, hey, share with us what you're doing on the election issue, and then we're gonna share with you things we're doing on the education issue, I think that probably can lead to a lot more productive dialogue and, and progress, and because we do have some things to learn. I'm just curious, would you happen to know off the top of your head what, what representation is in the Foreign Service? <laughs> well, it's, it's probably higher than 20. It's higher than 20, um, but there are issues in the Foreign Service, and it's interesting because, you know, in my job, people think that I do gender issues at the State Department. Well, first of all, they think I'm the women's minister in the United States, other countries <laughs> do, and then people in our post think that I do gender issues in the, in the State Department, which I don't. Um, Deputy Secretary Higginbottom does that, but I, I do pick up a lot of this, and I think there is a commitment on the part of the State Department to do better. I'm sure you know not too long ago in the 70s, I mean, if you got married or pregnant, you were kicked out of the Foreign Service, so we've come a long way. Um, but there are challenges for families in the, in the Foreign Service, and honestly, I think that's something that, you know, there, there may, it may bear some looking at from your perspective, because I think we lose a lot of talent. It's hard for families. Um, to pick up and go, and sometimes if you have both men and women who are in the service, it can be challenging when one starts well, to Well, in some cases, you can't bring dependents exactly. to some of our more challenging environments. Exactly, and I, I think it's important because the Foreign Service, I mean, I'm not a Foreign Service officer, I'm a political appointee, but they are really amazing people. They dedicate their lives to the country. I'm just profoundly impressed always by the, just their patriotism, their commitment, their love for the United States and how they represent us overseas. And I do think it's important for us to try to be as supportive of them as we and can. And by the way, I'm not here to pick on the State Department. As you know, no, no, you go to any no. embassy in the world, the majority of the people working in the embassy don't even work for state. They work for commerce, they work for whomever. So it's, a, it's across the board. And, and I too have always been impressed with the level of professionalism of our people that serve abroad. I always wonder 
you guys realize you could be making four times as much if you did the exact same thing on behalf of Coca-Cola or somebody else, but their willingness to serve our country. I wanted to go back just because I'm fresh off a trip from Honduras and I'm a big supporter of the Alliance for Prosperity, but one of the big investments we're making is in law enforcement and security. Have we, and I should know the answer to this, but, but is part of our metrics for the success of that program the prosecution of gender-based violence, domestic violence? It's a, it was a recurring issue in my travels as well in, in numerous meetings that in many cases, it, depending on where you are in the country, uh, men, both fathers, but primarily spouses, act with impunity when it comes to gender-based violence because they know that the local judges or police officers don't view that as inappropriate, that in essence, that, that's what you do. Is that one of the metrics that we're looking at? You may not even know, maybe we gotta get the answer more in detail, but are one of the metrics we're looking at as we calculate how much money to continue to give performance and improvement in gender-based violence, which I think is directly related to the other issues that they're confronting. Um, Senator, I actually don't know the, the answer to your specific question. We, we do, and I, I'll get it for you, we work closely with INL on two fronts. One is, and, and other countries as well, trying to make sure that countries understand the importance of prosecuting these cases and how to do that. Um, Guatemala, for example, has done a lot of work on one-stop centers that are pretty effective and we're trying to share that information with others. Um, but we're also working to try to encourage these countries to have more women in their police force and in their militaries, and that's a constant prodding that we're doing on our side because I think it makes them more effective. Obviously, it gives women job opportunities, but it also shows the community that women can be in these positions of authority, and I think it's very important. But I, I'll get the specific answer to your question about the metrics. I don't know the answer to that. If I could also circle back and connect the two questions you asked about Honduras, a good part of the work that we do, USAID does in Honduras is for at-risk youth. And we have a model program there where we uh, tackle the issue of school-based violence and preventing it. So if we can talk about the gender norms when boys and girls are younger and what is appropriate and what is not when they are making decisions and coming together as partners and growing up as adults, we can hopefully prevent some of the gender-based violence as well. So it's part of our broader curriculum there to address gender-based violence. So early. that's what I visit at Colonia Estados Unidos is uh, one of the areas where we're involved in that curriculum. If you, and it's a lot of it's about school-based bullying and uh, smoking is bad and drug use and things of this nature. And by the way, it's run by the Honduran police and, uh, and it was uh, women police officers that were conducting the majority of the program. So in some sense, well, now that's what they showed us. I don't know if it's if that program extends that way beyond. Did, did you wanna jump in? I, have a, I did wanna ask you about a more difficult question. You know, we've, uh, a large portion of our overseas education aid over the last 15 years has been spent in Afghanistan. And 40 million of the 75 million requested for the Let Girls Learn initiative for 2017 is for Afghanistan. And yet there was a recent cigar audit that found problems with evaluation methods and data used by US agencies implementing education aid and the Ministry of Education estimates that about 3.3 million Afghan children are still out of school. So I was hoping, uh, Ambassador Russell, you could discuss the impact of U.S. investment in girls' education in Afghanistan, the data that supports these conclusions and the sustainability of, of any gains that we've made there so far. Yeah, thank you, Senator. I, you know, it's interesting. Afghanistan, from the, from the beginning of my tenure, which hasn't been that long, but three years, has, has been something that is really um, preoccupied a lot of our attention in our office. And I think it's because the situation was so horrible for women and girls, and we've made substantial progress. I mean, there's no question about that, right? We went from zero girls in school under the Taliban to now, you know, three to four million girls in school. 
we've seen a lot of progress on um, maternal uh, life expectancy. So we see clear progress. Um, and I, you know, Susan, most of the, uh, the money that goes into Afghanistan is, is USAID money, but I can speak to some of the money that we have going in there, which I think is really important. Um, we're doing, at, just out of my office, which is such a small office at the State Department, but we support shelters for women uh, who are suffering from gender-based violence. And, you know, you see it in the paper all the time. I mean, the stories are very difficult. I mean, there's just, um, it's the same there as it is in many places, which is, I think, the root of these problems is that women and girls aren't always valued and it's you know seen as completely fine to, to abuse them and, and to and to do that in, in as I said in many parts of the world there is a real commitment I think on the part of the government to try to do a better job on the education front and we are definitely working with them on that we're also doing some work out of my office again on um, the problem of early enforced marriage uh, because we these girls are getting married so young and you'll see actually in this adolescent girl strategy there's a really famous photo if I can find it, I'll show it to you. But it's a, two girls who get married, uh, and the men who marry them are like, you know, in their 40s. I mean, it's just a horrific picture. But um, I think that is not uncommon there. And oh, here it is. It's a really famous photo. And honestly, I mean, when you look at that, it really does. I, I can't see the page number without my glasses. Page 19, 18, and 19. Um, but when you look at that, it really shows you what we're struggling with here, right? And um, from our perspective, as hard as it is to keep these girls in, a, in an education setting, particularly in the provinces, the rural areas, it's very difficult. We're trying to get more women teachers there. We don't have enough there. Um, you know, it's difficult. Families make a decision that it's too dangerous to send their kids to school. There are lots of problems there, but we're trying to address those. And, and Susan can speak more broadly to the to the. And, and I'm going to just add, there's a, and you may have, I may have seen this. So the, the Vice has this uh, like frontline series. I think it's a 30 minute, and they did one on Afghan women, and I believe it was Vice, and it showed um, that groups of women that are now banding together to defend and protect themselves, um, in essence, standing together. But what was stunning to me is in, in one of the interviews, and I forget who the local official was they were interviewing, was being interviewed by a woman. And at some point in the interview, he got so annoyed with her questions that he basically said to her, you know what needs to happen? I should marry you off to an Afghan man to who will cut your nose off uh, or something, so he can cut your nose off or something like that. So you're dealing with very deeply yeah. embedded yes. cultural norms that... Um, we need to continue to expose and, 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 and I mean, shame. A, 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 it's not unusual there for girls to be sold in, into marriage to pay off a debt. I mean, it, it, there are very serious problems uh, in that culture. And I, I, you know, there is no easy answer. There's no one, one thing we can do. But I do believe that educating girls and trying to empower women will really ultimately have the greatest significance there because it will, and, and I will say this, there are great Afghan men who believe in this, who are getting their girls educated, who see the value in that, who support their wives. But there are challenges every day for teachers, for girls, for women, and I think we just have to, we have to keep at it. You know, I, I personally feel, and as an official of the United States government, that we cannot walk away from them. You know, we have made progress, and we have, as hard as it is, we have to stick with it. Just a, a data point, um, the life expectancy in Afghanistan in 2001 was about, you know, in the 40 to 45-year-old age range, and uh, it's now over 60. And if you think 30 million Afghan Afghans time a 17-year increase in life expectancy, that's like 500 million years of human life. And that has largely been because of reduction in infant mortality and better health care for women and for young children. Um, 
So, you know, one of the things I know we grapple with, we sometimes have to answer questions like, well, you know, what has this investment of American treasure blood um, been worth? Well, it's like it's, it's made a huge advance. It's made a huge advance. And, um, you know, the, the, and I, I'm on the Armed Services Committee, and I think there's a pretty stark contrast. If we look at Afghanistan, we look at Iraq. I mean, it got to the end of the, our allotted time in Iraq, and they really sort of wanted us to go. In, in Afghanistan, they deeply, deeply, deeply want us to stay. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have to grapple with the accountability on dollars and making sure it's being spent the right way. But I, I'm completely with you. The, the partnership that we've struck, and whether it's our military or whether it's our USAID workers or our public health officials, uh, having a functioning public health system uh, for women and children has been part of a hugely transformative success story. I'm not sure you're going to find a place in the world where life expectancy changed by 15 years within a decade. I, I'm just not that's sure and I think that, that that's ever happened. It's part of this is the holistic approach, because I see yeah. included in this is the healthcare aspect of it. Maternal mortality It's one of the leading yeah. causes of death for a long time in many places. I don't know what the numbers are today. I'm sure they're still relatively high in many parts of the world, but I, I suspect that, that that figure is among others that are included in the, in the, in the overall, uh, both the prenatal care, the, the infant and maternal mortality, and then the follow-up if a child is born with disabilities in particular, I imagine if it's a child born with disabilities and female in some of these cultures, it's probably as close to a death sentence as you get in, in many cases when they're infanticide and things of this nature. I do think that's an important point. You know, why have an adolescent girl strategy now? And I think the re reason is because we've understood what we've both all alluded to, this idea that when she, a girl enters puberty, her life can either expand and she can imagine all the great things that she can do or it can really shrink and, you know, she gets the veil and she isn't allowed to travel and she's pulled out of school in order to do work. And so at USAID, we really look at this point as if we can keep her healthy and in school, not HIV, uh, positive or pregnant or married, for every year that we can continue that education and keep her on an upward trajectory, it has implications for her life, for her families, her earning potential, but also now we're seeing for her children. For every year that she stays in school, her children are more likely to be born healthy and to be educated as well. So for us, it's a good investment. It's uh, great for our development dollars, and I think it does. It can show impact very quickly. I appreciate you both being here, and I know, Ambassador, you're on a tight time frame. I thank you for the work that you're doing, and uh, this is an important topic. Um, I think the one thing that's most startling is the more challenging the environment, the likelier is there are all sorts of other problems coming out of there as well. And we haven't even gotten a chance to talk about some of the more difficult places where you may not be as involved, the situation in Saudi Arabia, the situation for women in many other parts of the world. Um, but there is a direct cor correlation between the treatment of women and, and, and young girls uh, and adolescents and with the characteristics those nations are exhibiting on the international stage and the problems that are emanating from there. I don't think it's a stretch to say that how a society treats its women and girls in many ways reflects the general health of that society at large. And so the work you're doing is very important and I look forward to continue to be supportive. Uh, and I thank you for coming in today and taking the time to share with us. Thank, thank you, you so much. And we we agree totally and would be happy to answer any other questions or come back and talk to you or your staff and fill you in on anything that we're doing. And we really appreciate it. And as I said when we talked earlier, the fact that you mention and ask about women and girls when you travel, really for both of you, that's hugely helpful to us because it shows what America cares about. Well, and I just want you to know sometimes you don't have to ask. It's one of the first yeah. topics that comes up when you meet with civil society and rights groups almost invariably 
it comes up as a, a big challenge uh, in these countries. And th sometimes the government leaders deny they have a problem. They'll show you a picture of someone, oh, I have an employee that yeah. happens to be a yeah. woman, and see, there's progress. <laughs> That's it, yeah. But the disconnect between how society feels about it and, and uh, some of these government leaders is pretty stark. And we're spending a lot of money in these countries, a lot of money on things unrelated to this. And I do believe it gives us standing to say a lot of your problems that are ultimately are impacting us as well uh, emanate from your treatment of women and young girls uh, in your country. So I thank you both for being here. I appreciate it. We're going to get our next panel seated, and I thank you. We're going to get our next panel seated. Please uh, join me in welcoming Ms. Linda Hebert, the Senior Director of Education and Life Skills for World Vision. Ms. Megan Stone, who's the president of the Malala Fund, and uh, Ms. Kenkaya Natalia, who's founder and president of the Kenkaya Center for Excellence. So just in the interest of time, your, your statements have been submitted for the record, and I know, Ms. Natalia, you have a written statement you want to share with us as well. But um, I know that Senator Kane has an, an engagement in a few minutes, so uh, I want to make sure we get to everybody. And I apologize, the first panel ran over by a few minutes. But uh, Ms. Hebert, thank you for coming. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Chairman, uh, and thank you for inviting World Vision to testify about the barriers to girls' education and the vulnerability of children to violence. In the interest of time, as you suggested, I have uh, uh, submitted my written testimony uh, for the record. Mr. Chairman, I speak before your subcommittee this morning to underscore a very urgent issue. One out of every 11 children is out of school around the world. There are 62 million adolescents out of school globally and half of these are girls. And the trend is worse in conflict zones. One in four children in conflict situations do not attend school. That number is growing as more and more children's lives are disrupted by war. Girls living in conflict-affected contexts are twice as likely to be out of school, and 90% of girls are more likely to be out of secondary school than girls living in countries not affected by conflict. Compounding these staggering trends, global aid for education fell by 10% between 2010 and 2012. Less than 2%, that is 2% of all humanitarian assistance is spent on addressing education. It's appalling how under-resourced and poorly understood the root causes of gender inequality are. We must address these crit critical issues in a holistic way and ensure they are appropriately resourced. World Vision believes every child should be educated, healthy, cared for, and protected. But our hope for children is still far from reality. Today, I'd like to highlight why families struggle to send their daughters to school. Whether that is due to a lack of access to safe, quality, and affordable education, social attitudes that do not value education for girls, sending girls into the labor market to help support the family, or limited livelihood opportunities for their caregivers and parents. We need to carefully consider the needs and barriers girls experience in order to more effectively meet their evolving education, psychosocial, and life skill needs. I'd like to focus on two key issues where barriers to girls' education require critical attention. Children in conflict, as you've already uh, mentioned, affected those contexts, and adolescent girls in secondary education. I would like to tell you about Melisa, who is a 13-year-old and from Zimbabwe. Melisa dreams of becoming a nurse, and a holistic approach to her education is helping her make this dream reality. Melisa is in the seventh grade and participates in a project run by World Vision with eight partner organizations called Improving Girls' Access Through Transforming Education, or IGATE. 
Two years ago, she joined the iGate Girls Club intended to help girls like Melisa learn about their own potential as individuals and as members of their society. Her grandmother is a member of the iGate Village Savings and Lending Group to help increase the family's access to, li to livelihoods and assets. Melisa said, and I quote, before, I never thought I would imagine be managed to proceed to a grade seven because my grandmother was struggling to pay my school fees and also pay for other basic education necessities. I no longer lack anything that is needed for school, unquote. Melisa is now confident that she will pass into the seventh grade and proceed to secondary school because her grandmother is able to pay for school fees, provide necessary school materials, and buy food for the family. Melisa can now dream about her future and is even inspiring other girls in her community with the following. After completing my studies, I wanted to be a nurse. And the encouragement that I'm giving to other girls within the community is that they should value education and never drop out of school." Unquote. Addressing the barriers to education for girls requires a multi-sectoral response and the involvement of influential relationships in girls' lives, including local governments, school officials, teachers, religious and community leaders, community members, peers, and the girl's family. I'd also like to tell you a story of 15-year-old Fatma, a Syrian refugee who fled to Lebanon's Baqa Valley with her family. World Vision collaborated with NPR, the radio program, to profile this intelligent young woman whose only hope is to someday go back to school again. Fatma used to be a top student at her school in Syria before her family was forced to leave their home. Bombs and fighting were everywhere, Fatima said. So we left to survive. Now, she and her four siblings work 14-hour days in agricultural work to help pay their family's debt to a Lebanese landowner who gave them a loan to help them escape from Assyria. I had a dream that when I came here to Lebanon, I would study here and go to school and become an Arabic language teacher, Fatima said. And then, when I go back to Syria, my dream would have been, to achieve, been achieved but it did not work out for me that way. Now her days are spent in the fields of Baqa Valley, picking vegetables and weeding. When the foreman thinks the children aren't working hard enough, he'll beat them with a hard plastic pipe. Despite these many hardships living as a refugee, Fatma still holds on to a very small hope of returning to school someday. Her mother wants the children to go back to school, but the family doesn't have the option. How can we do it? We are forced to work. In Lebanon, 60% of Syrian refugee children are involved in child labor, and 50% of Syrian refugee children are now out of school. As barriers to adult work are exacerbated and families fall more into debt, children carry the weight of providing for their families, sacrificing their education and often their safety. Indeed, we would witness a lost generation of Syria's children if these trends continue. I'd like to speak to you today on behalf of these girls. There is more we can and must do for vulnerable children. And I'd like to make the following recommendations. First, funding for education should be robust in our foreign assistance, including funding that focuses on the barriers to education for vulnerable children, especially girls, in all settings. In particular, we recommend funding the Development Assistance Basic Education Account at the current level of $800 million. Congress should work with USAID as it develops its next strategy. In particular, we recommend a holistic approach that places specific emphasis on the most vulnerable, especially girls, ethnic minorities, and children with disabilities. 
And then we strongly recommend that introducing a companion bill to HR 4481, the Education for All Act. And then finally, since uh, the average length of displacement is now 17 years, the U.S. government must not solely rely on short-term humanitarian assistance to support displaced populations, especially with critical education programming. In protracted crisis, the education for displaced children should be integrated into the National Development Assistance Plan to strengthen resilience and lessen independence on, foreign, on humanitarian relief. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I really appreciate the invitation to speak today. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, okay, Dr. Mattia. Good morning, Chairman Oribio and Senator McCain. My name is Kakenya Ntaya, and I'm the founder and the president of the Kakenya Center for Excellence. Thank you for inviting me to testify on the barriers of girls' education. The Kakenya Center for Excellence is an NGO based in my village in Kenya that educates, empowers uh, vulnerable girls in rural Kenya. I'm here to tell you two stories about the opportunities we create when we educate girls. One is my personal story that inspires the creation of the Kakenya Center for Excellence, and the other is the story of Faith, one of our fourth grade girls. I was engaged at the age of five, was supposed to be married as I reached uh, puberty. The traditional part for me was to undergo female genital cutting and to be married while I was a teenager. But I really wanted to go to school and be a teacher. Girls in my village are prepared for a, uh, for a young age to be mothers. Just like all the girls in my village, I was required to gather firewood, fetch water from the river, take care of my siblings, cook, and keep the house clean. After all that, we could go to school until we were cut. I wanted something different. I negotiated with my father that I would undergo female genital cutting if he allowed me to continue with school. He took the deal. After I finished high school, which is very unusual for many girls in my village, I negotiated with the men in my village to allow me to come to school in America. I promised that I will come, I will come back and use what I learned to help my village. Many boys had come to school in, the, in America, but they had never come back to the village. I was allowed by the elders in my community to leave my village and study in America. In 2009, while a graduate student at the University of Pittsburgh, I worked to open the first primary school for girls in my village with the help of many friends and supporters. I was tired of hearing about young girls being forced into early marriages or subjected to female genital cutting or left at home to care for their siblings and not given an opportunity to continue with school. We started a boarding school for fourth to eighth grade um, girls that has helped 277 girls get a ed good education while also teaching them about their health and their rights. We started a health and leadership training program that served 3,000 girls and boys each year. We have expanded beyond our boarding school because the demand for our program is so great. We don't have the capacity to serve the hundreds of girls who show up for the 40 slots we have in our boarding school each year. I'm also pleased to share that we continue to support our graduates to continue into high school. Today, we are supporting 95 girls in high school with scholarship, mentoring, and training 
so that they can continue their progress. Faith, Faith's story is one that inspires me and frightens me because all the girls living in extreme poverty and hopelessness that we are not able to enroll in our school. Faith is nine years old. She has five siblings and 10 steps brothers and sisters. Her father is married to three wives and Faith's mother is the third wife. Last year in December, Faith got up very early in the morning and asked several of her member, members of her family to bring her to enrollment in our school. Her father said no. Her mother said no because she needed to earn money to feed the family that day. Faith took an egg and sold it in the market to buy a pencil. She walked four miles to our school over very rough roads. We have hundreds of girls and uh, we we have hundreds of girls and their families on our campus on enrollment day. I did not realize that Faith was all alone or no family member had come with her until she broke down during the family interview. After we got her calmed down, she said that her father didn't have any money, but she, ha she had done all she could to come to get into school. I told her that she would be able to come to our school and start on, in fourth grade. The next day, she brought her mother because her mother told her she wouldn't be able to go to school because they didn't have money for school. I told her mother to bring her to school because we will take care of the rest. I think of the determination and the potential of a girl like Faith, who does what it takes to get into school. I think of our willpower that, that like that will create new female leaders in Kenya that we can help as face all the challenges in our country and around the world. How many talents are we wasting when we don't put resources into girls' education? One of my favorite things to watch is the pride of the fathers as they watch their daughters learn, as they watch the, them get the higher marks on national exam, as they watch them stand up for themselves and plan their future, and plan their future as doctors and lawyers. Fathers are the ones at, out at front saying our girls will not be subjected to female genital cutting. Our fathers are the ones convincing other fathers that there is a better future for the girls. The Kakenya Center for Excellence is changing fathers, changing mothers, changing some of the deeply rooted cultural practices that hinders girls from continuing with schools in rural Kenya. We have an effective model to share with other rural communities who have high rates of early forced marriages and female genital cutting. Chairman Rubio and Kane, plus all other senators, you have an important role to, to in the success of the Kakenya Center for Excellence and other NGOs like ours who are eradicating destructive cultural practices. We have been able to assemble, uh, assemble private donors to educate uh, future leaders in Africa. It will take many more resources, including the support of the US government to scale our model and share our strategies with other rural communities in Africa and beyond. A girl who is educated has impact beyond her village. He has an impact on the world. Thank you very much. Ms. Stone. Thank you, Dr.
Hi, good morning. My name is Megan Stone, and I'm so honored to serve as the president of the Malala Fund and to join you today. Thank you so much for inviting the fund. I wanted to just read a letter from Malala. She's not here today because she's actually in her school. Uh, she's been taking exams where she feels every girl should be, so she was honored in between studying to send you a letter. Thank you for hearing her thoughts. She says, when the Taliban first came to my home in the Swat Valley in Pakistan, they banned all education for girls. My father, Ziyadeen, was a teacher. He and his friends challenged the Taliban on the rights of girls. A little while later, the Taliban agreed to allow girls to go to school for three years, but no further. Why? The Taliban knew that primary education would give girls basic skills they needed to fulfill roles they approved of for women, serving their husbands and doing housework. But they also knew that it was not enough education to allow them to think critically, to take control of their futures or be leaders in their communities. Globally, more than 63 million girls are out of school and denied their right to education. Without access to a full 12 years of education, we know that girls' opportunities are limited and that many will continue to marry and have children while they are still young. I have seen that donor countries often have many good intentions to get more girls in school, but do not commit funding that leads to real change for girls like me. As a student in Pakistan, I've often heard world leaders pledging support to give more children access to education, but still there was no secondary school for girls in my village until the Malala Fund started to build one with local partners. I'm asking the United States and other donor countries for funding for 12 full years of education to ensure the poorest girls around the world receive the education they need to succeed. I feel lucky to be able to complete my secondary education as many girls in my village are still missing out on school and to have the opportunity to address leaders like you on their behalf. They want you to know that they are ambitious and they want an education that will allow them to fulfill their potential and provide for their families just like girls in the US. I hope together that we can make that a reality. Thank you, Malala. I'm gonna abbreviate my, my remarks and just focus mostly on the recommendations Malala asked us to share um, and, and start with a thank you. I think so many times advocacy organizations like our own don't take time to say thank you when there's actual leadership from government. So we wanted to say a special thank you to the US government for your recent commitment for the Education Cannot Wait Fund. We wanted to say a special thank you for the $5.1 billion in funding that the U.S. has dedicated to Syria humanitarian relief. Malala and myself were at the Supporting Syria Summit in London in February, and their Secretary Kerry, of course, announced about $290 million in funding to help children go to school in Jordan and Lebanon, and that was an extraordinary commitment on behalf of the U.S. government. Thank you for your leadership. So in, in addition to her gratitude, because Malala is Pashtun, she always starts with hospitality and gratitude, we want to leave you with three recommendations that she wanted us to share. First, she hopes that you'll increase funding for girls' education. We can talk about girls a lot. Um, we can say the right talking points, but the numbers reveal the real truth. We've seen education funding flatline all over the world, including in the US. We really want to see an increase in the budget this year. There's unprecedented need. The great hope is that $875 million will be dedicated to bilateral education funding and that $125 million will go to the Global Partnership for Education, of which Malala is a dedicated champion because she believes strongly in their work. This is a really small down payment on our future and it's funds we can either pay now or we will pay dearly for in the future in an unstable world. Second, in Malala's own experience, the Malala Funds work globally. We know that developing country educators and frontline organizations are best placed to understand the needs of girls in their own communities. However, we see that the top 20 recipients of USAID funding are actually US-based organizations. We need to see real numbers dedicated in terms of funding to help leaders change their own countries. It's the only way we're going to see resilient change. 
Lastly, we believe this committee has a tremendous difference you can make on transparency. We would ask that you would consider directing the Congressional Budget Office to determine exactly how much the U.S. government spends on actual girls' secondary education, not wraparound services which are vital, but direct resources to educate girls between the ages of 12 and 18 and how much is being spent in each country. Often in our meetings with government officials, they don't know the answer to this question and that data is vital. We hope you'll also apply that same stringent approach to data with our developing country partners because girls like Malala know all too well that we need to focus on what happens when the funds arrive to the country, not just what happens here in appropriations. We have to demand real data measurement. If we say girls count, we have to count them. We need to have real vision and ambition from ministries of education when they use this funding. In closing, in light of current events, we felt it was important to note that Malala is a proud Muslim. It's a faith that she holds dear and inspires her work for peace and education. Our Malala Fund team, many of whom are here with me today, is made up of mostly women, and they're mostly the next generation of leaders that we hope to see leading globally. We are Christian, we are Jewish, we are Sikh, Baha'i, our staff is Hindu, gay, straight, we are Pakistani, our team is Nigerian, British, Afghan, South Sudanese, Malawian, Indian, and American. And I'm probably forgetting a few countries even in that long list. Despite our differences, we stand for ourselves but never against each other. We're united in hope and in commitment. I wanna leave this honorable committee with a request, a humble request from Malala and from our team. And it's the evidence of which we see in action every day, to be willing to suspend disbelief for just a moment and to consider that the current media and political landscape hides an incredible opportunity, that the young women and also men of Malala's generation globally, who are often not at the summit negotiation table, who are not yet in parliaments, but who are desperate to learn and lead their countries towards change, are not just a youth bulge, but they're the very key to unlocking peace and stability in the countries in which we see conflict today. We don't see them in peace negotiations, but we find them so easily online. We don't see them quoted in newspapers, but they are so eager to talk to us and to share if we are only willing to listen. They are hiding in plain sight. Some see a young Syrian as a threat, but the young Syrian women we meet in refugee camps want to go to school and become journalists. They want to rebuild their nation. They want to serve in government because they see the change that needs to happen. They want to change our world for good, just like Malala. They need our faith and our partnership, not condemnation or doubt. They need an education, just like we do here, just like we hope for our own daughters in America. They need our leadership and our generosity, and that's something I know we all agree and believe is one of America's greatest strengths. Malala defended her own education at great personal peril and risk. Today, she's fighting to make sure all girls can go to school for a full 12 years because she understands that education is the key to their futures and to ours as well. So on behalf of millions of girls around the world, Malala thanks you for your leadership, and she asks for your support and continued commitment to education for all. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for your testimony. Let me, let me begin with the, Ms. Mataya. Your, your website explains some of what's involved in the selection process for the students. At the boarding school, the, the notes that the orphans are automatically accepted, otherwise they have to come with one parent, as in the story you just told. I was wondering, how many of the students that you have are orphaned? I'm sorry, if you could, the microphone, no, I can't hear, sorry. Uh, about 20% of our students are orphaned, um, mostly because uh, others, they are hidden, and when we take enrollment, they might not come. So sometimes we have to follow up to know a certain family, the parent died, and we have to go look for the, 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 the kid. Because what happened as a girl, when our parents are not available or they are dead, um, she's, 
she becomes a house help for the grandfather, for the grandmother, or the other people in the homes. And she's really hidden from the society. Um, and that's what happens. Well, how do they typically find out about the school? Through words of, word of mouth, um, but we also run a health and leadership program that we integrate within schools in our community. We work with about 40 schools, uh, and within those schools they hear about our Center for Excellence. Uh, but also in the last three years, our school has performed the best in the county that we are in, and that word goes out and everybody wants to bring their daughters. So last year we had 300, uh, 230 girls apply. We could only take uh, 40 girls. The, for the ones who do have a parent, at least, maybe two, the fact that they even came to the school is usually an indication that the parent is supportive of education? The, the, it's, a, an edu it, uh, it, uh, it's a way that they want to educate, but most of the parents, they just want to get rid of the girl because, you know, one burden is out. And when we talk in our school, we do uh, support fully the, the students that come into our school. So the parent feels that if they can just get there, and they are forgotten. Uh, but it's also a sign that they are committed to what we do, because every parent that comes into our school, once they are in enrolled, all the girls cannot be mutilated, they cannot be married out early, they are committed to ensuring that the girl continue to high school, um, and they are always committed every once a month to come and visit the girls, and it's a commitment that has brought joy eventually to the girls, uh, to the parents. And that, that's the follow-up question, so you've described the scenario where a parent basically is looking for a place, sadly, to get rid of one more mouth to feed in the home and the school provides that outlet, and that's a terrible situation, but once these girls complete their schooling and emerge educated, su succeeding, have you seen changes in the family where suddenly they view it differently? All of a sudden, it, it's, that's replaced with a certain sense of parental pride that perhaps initially wasn't there? It, what has been very amazing is when the girls are given the opportunity, they bring pride to their families. Um, most of the time they are brought in there, of course, the parent is saying, um, you know, just take her, it's less burden. But eventually that girl ended up, end up bringing their girls to their sisters to some of the programs we have. They end up bringing, um, ensuring that the father is educating the other girls in, or the kids, all kids in her family. Uh, we have a lot of parents' meetings that parents come, and the girl ensures that the parents come to the parents' meeting. And, and this ripple effect, you, know, you see a pride that first the father is not sure whether they should allow this girl to go to this school, and then she's accepted, and then I'm not sure if she's not going to go through female genital cutting. And then these girls perform the top of a class in the whole county that we are in, and all of a sudden the father who has never gone to school, the mother who has never gone to school is out there saying, this is my daughter, and I want her to go to school. And I've, they've been very fortunate because I have, uh, myself, I, I grew up in the village, I told and I showed the, the community what it means to educate a woman. Uh, I went, I came to this country, I got my education, but I went back and really invested in them. So they have this thing that if you educate a girl, we have seen her fruits. And that is kind of the whole idea they have now for the girls that go to our school and even those who are not going to our school, if they can get scholarship to go to high school, they can come back and help us. What, is the Kenyan government supportive? Yes, we do work with the Kenyan government, especially the local ministry, especially when we do our trainings in, in different schools that we are in. Uh, we work with them in the measurement and evaluation and evaluating our program. We are really key about quality uh, because the Kenyan government uh, 
allowed uh, free primary education that really ended up to destroying the curriculum, destroying the quality of the education that was coming out in all the schools. And for us, we know we have 40 students, that's a big number when you think about, but compared to other schools that have 40 students, uh, that have 100, up to 100 students in one class, our quality is very high. And the government really takes pride in that. Uh, when you compare, it's like a competition we have ranking in the country. All of a sudden you find that the government is saying we are partners and they're very supportive. They've helped us build some of our buildings in our school. Um, yes, thank you. Ms. Hebert, you, you, in your testimony, you stated enrollment is not enough in refugee situations. I want, if you could take time to expand on that, exactly what that, I think I know what you mean, but if you could expand on that for the record. Sure. Thank you, Senator. Um, yes, we know that uh, we've made great progress in terms of enrollment for, for uh, children getting into prim primarily primary uh, grade levels over the last several years with the MDGs. But enrollment is not enough. We need to actually have quality education, and particularly when we're thinking about children who are in uh, crisis and conflict situations. Those are the children who are at most risk. We know that there are generations of children who will be lost if we don't have them just in school, but also have them learning uh, quality education in school. But secondly, the other p part of that is the non-formal education. So for example, in Lebanon where we're working, we have a non-formal education program for students who are not able to attend school, either because there's not a space for them or because they are working. And, and yet we are, have a challenge with the Lebanese government to approve that non-formal education. So access is not, is not enough. Um, and I think you also talked about it in the sense of the bill that you had spoken about. There was a House version, not a Senate version. But what are the top areas where the U.S. government can intervene effectively to support either girls' education or educational programming for refugee children? Um, particularly, um, I was uh, delighted to hear that my colleague also talked about the Education Cannot Wait uh, Fund. I think that's a critical piece for us to continue to support. We, the U.S. government has pledged $20 million. Uh, from our perspective, uh, it would be great if we could pledge more. Uh, particularly for education emergencies. As I mentioned, only 2% of humanitarian assistance goes towards education. It's a, it's a neglected area of um, our, our U.S. government programs. So we, we do need to have more financial support. I think also supporting the SDGs, and again, the U.S. government has done a great job in supporting the SDGs, but it, we would really urge uh, all of our um, foreign policy uh, staff uh, as they engage with governments overseas to really look at how their policies are affecting particularly children in conflict and crisis uh, situations, but also particularly girls as well. So that would be uh, another key piece. And then I think um, working with Senator Durbin on the, uh, the companion piece of HR 4481, um, that would be great if we could have um, the Senate take up that piece of legislation on uh, Education for All Act. So those would be two key pieces. Ms. Stone, I know that uh, Nigeria is among the challenging countries where the fund is, is at work. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your work with the kidnapped girls who have escaped Boko Haram? 
Yes, thank you, Senator. So Malala was honored to travel there two years ago on her birthday, which the UN named Malala Day, and she felt it was important to go do two things, to meet with the families of the girls who were abducted, to stand in solidarity with them, because as a girl impacted by conflict herself in her own community, she knows that story, and she wanted to be there with who she calls her sisters and their families. And so she met with the families of the girls who had been abducted. She made a commitment at that time that any girl who returns, that the Malala Fund would pay for their education to complete high school, which we have done uh, for a number of the returnees who have escaped from Boko Haram, which we're honored to do. And she met with the president at that time, good luck Jonathan, uh, I think who was a bit surprised at how pointed her questions were about not only the response to the lack of safety for schoolgirls, but also the lack of robust data and funding to support girls' secondary education in Nigeria. It's a place where we continue to work. We have incredible local partners there that are finding powerful ways to work within the cultural context to help girls in Kaduna State and in the North where Boko Haram's active to actually access education at great peril. The, in her home country of Pakistan, there's, has the second largest number of girls that are not in school in the world. You were, I know you've worked with vulnerable and married girls to provide access to quality post-primary education. For the girls who were child brides, what's been the typical response of their husbands? And, and, and do you work with girls who may have already have children themselves? This is an issue for anyone focused on girls' secondary education. So what happens when a girl's married when she's too young and she may or may not have children? And a lot of policies will not allow them to return to school. So this is a place where the US government can say, when we bring this funding, we also expect you to change the law to allow girls to have access to a right to the age of 18. We can support local leaders who are pushing and fighting for that in their own country. We find that in Pakistan in change. particular, hmm? in, in Pakistan in particular, what's been the the child, the, the, the girls that are child brides, what's been the typical response, both from government and from their husbands and from the society? I would say two things. One is that it's not seen as a right of a girl to return to school when she gets married or when she has a child. But the thing I would say immediately following is we see in Malala's own family that tremendous change can happen within a generation. Her father, Ziadine's father, was a mullah and a cleric um, and had different perspectives on the rights of women. You know, Malala would be the first to tell you it was her father's empowerment and belief in her, not only as an education, uh, you know, deliver himself as a teacher, but believing powerfully in his daughter. And I think sometimes we look at this part of the world and we think things are intractable, but we see in their own family that generationally there can be incredible change if you reach out to communities and work with them intensively. Has that been the experience in your work in Pakistan? We've definitely seen promise. We're able to work in Hyber Pakhtunwa, where the Taliban have been active, and we found that there is absolutely opportunity to work with local community leaders to ensure that more girls can go to school. I know that on her 18th birthday, she traveled to Lebanon, is that correct? And she had opened an all-girls school near the Syrian border. It was named in her honor. Could you give us an update on that school, for example? How many girls are enrolled? Uh, for those girls who graduate, what sort of employment or university-level educational opportunities exist for them as refugees? What, what's, how's the, how are we doing? Or how's it going there? Yeah, thank you, Senator. We're pleased to report on it. I was actually with her on that trip. Uh, there's a local partner there, and this against the point of local leadership, called the Kayani Foundation that built that school. There's over 300 girls who are enrolled. Uh, as someone referenced earlier, in Lebanon, they don't allow for formal camps. Those girls are coming from informal squatter communities. They've become enrolled, they are progressing in their studies. None of them are old enough to have graduated yet, but we can't wait to see that happen one day. The curriculum there is a modern curriculum. It gives them digital training and other skills, not just a post-colonial education, which is rote and memorization, but really critical thinking skills they need to get real jobs. How many girls are enrolled? Over 300, and we're actually funding a second school with the same foundation. 
and we're thrilled to see another 300 girls enroll in that school as well. They're in the midst of building it at present, also in Becca Valley. And uh, I imagine the education, and what language are they learning? Arabic. So it's primarily Arabic. Are they learning second languages as part of their education? Or? Arabic is so vital. A lot of the girls have actually been out of school for up to four or five years, and it's not uncommon to sit with a girl and ask her to write something in Arabic, and she can only remember sometimes how to write her own name. So we start with the language they learned in, in, in Syria. Right. That's How do you account for the different, so you're getting a 10-year-old girl, one of whom may be reading at a third grade level, one mm -hmm. who may not be able to read it all, another one who might be a bit more advanced for whatever reason. So how, how it must be a real mission to kind of put everyone at the right starting point. It is, you're exactly right. Uh, it's clear you've studied the issue quite closely. This is a challenge, Senator, for anyone doing this work. It's how do you help kids catch up and catch up quickly so they can back, get back into school and then complete their education. And language is a barrier also in places like Turkey where kids are trying to learn, girls are trying to learn in Turkish when they're Arabic speakers. They may have been out of school for three or four years, so it's tremendously challenging. They have to take exams to get into the high school system in Turkey that are in Turkish. Yeah. So not only are they trying to catch up, they're trying to learn another language, which is very challenging. Challenging. But I guess, for lack of a better term, they're, they're, the grade they're in uh, is not necessarily based on their age, it's based on their starting point. Exactly. Yeah. There's a, not, a lot of support and funding and effort that has to go to helping them catch up, but they are able if they're given the opportunity. Well, I appreciate all of you being here. We've gone a little longer than we were supposed to be scheduled, but this is such an important hearing. I want to thank all of you for, for being a part of this. This is an incredibly important issue, as you heard from the first panel. And it's important for us not just to hear from the U.S. government side, which we did, and we are grateful for their service, but also from those who are on the front lines and the non-governmental organizations, in particular the, uh, the, the three recommendations that you had made, Ms. Stone, about the, the increase in the funding, uh, the funding, ensuring that the funding is going to local partners and empowering local organizations who can in turn become force multipliers, not simply running it through our own systems. We're not just there to put money in, but also to empower local uh, capacity. And, and the third is a very interesting one, and that is finding out from CBO, from the Congressional Budget Office, just how much of all this money is actually being targeted specifically at secondary education for girls uh, are good suggestions. The third one in particular is one that I think we can follow up on. And um, so I'm grateful to all of you for being here, and I, and I thank you and, and uh, for your patience, for your testimony, for the time that you spend, and for the work that you're doing on this in incredibly important issue. Uh, so uh, all I would say is that the record of this hearing is going to remain open for over 40, for about 48 hours. There are some members that could not attend. We had some other foreign relations committee activity going on separate from this. But their staffs are here, they're watching on C-SPAN 14 or whatever channel we're on. And, uh, and so there may be some questions that may come to you in writing, some follow-up questions from some of our other members or maybe even from our office. And I would just ask if you get that, I know you're all very busy, but to the extent you could answer that for them, it's important. The record of this hearing in many ways will help shape the congressional debate as we move forward on things like the suggestions you've all made. So thank you all for being here and, and with that, this hearing's adjourned.